How y'all doing? I can always count on you, Russ. Always count on you. Um, so I, uh, I have to admit, I was, I'm covering my mic, so if you can't hear me, it's not James Fault's mine. Um, I, told, I told Kenna, um, she mentioned that uh, I was a little casual today. Um, she was not being critical, no worries. Um, and I said, no worries, I will wear a tie. So I have good intentions of putting a tie on, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, so if you think I'm too casual, well, there you go, I, I am, but you'll just have to stay tuned for a minute. Um, oh, man, now I'm throwing tie clips down. Ugh. And apparently I'm getting old because I have to grunt to stand up. <laughs> Y'all doing good? I think I already asked you, but are you really doing good? It's a good day. It's a good day. Um, so we've been kind of working through the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know where we're going to be, it's going to be Matthew chapter 7 today. Um, we're going to look at the first, I think, 12 verses. Um, but um, I, I just, we've been working through this Sermon on the Mount, and I, I realized, um, let's see, that would have been Wednesday night, Wednesday night, that uh, this is not a sermon that we're going to walk through today and tomorrow, or tomorrow, and next week, over the last couple months. It's not a sermon that we can walk through and be like, okay, we've got this now. Um, this teaching that Jesus has, the reason it's so profound is because it's so applicable. Um, and the truth is, about the time you think you've got it and you've applied it all to your life, go back and read it again because you got work to do still. Um, if we spent our entire lives just trying to perfectly live out the standards set in the Sermon on the Mount, we will not be bored. Um, there is plenty in this sermon to apply to our lives. As a matter of fact, I got to experience that a little bit Wednesday night. Um, <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> um, so, so Wednesday night, well, of course, we had revival meetings here um, Sunday through Wednesday, and Bruce was here. He did a fantastic job. I, I was really encouraged by what Bruce had to share about telling our stories and, uh, and, and, and testifying, being a witness for Jesus. Um, and I was really encouraged by what he had to say. I was um, actually really challenged by what he had to say because, y'all, we got stories to share. And here's the thing about those stories. Ultimately, they're not our stories. Well, yeah, we're a part of them. It's Jesus' story. He's just invited us into it so we can be a part of his story, which is really an awesome thing when you think about it. The God of the universe invites us into his story. Um, so we were here, we were encouraged by Bruce, I had a good time, and, but maybe the best part was we got to enjoy fellowship as a, as a church together afterwards each night. Um, you know, I, I like to eat, we had a potluck the first night, next night we had cookies, um, whole other story I could get to on that, but we're not going to go there right now. Um, Tuesday we had birthday cake, and then Wednesday we had ice cream, right? And now you're all hungry and thinking, Jared, get to the point because we want to go eat. Okay, Wednesday we had ice cream. In our youth group, a lot of these lovely people on our front row right here, they were kind enough to, to stick around and, and actually help serve that ice cream, which was awesome. I'm glad you guys were there to serve. Um, at least I was at first. Um, <laughs> some of you know what happened, so you, you know where I'm going. Um, so Wednesday night, um, I'm trying to get things around. I'm trying to get things gathered up, and it's like 9 o'clock already. My kids go to bed at like 8, so I'm trying to get my kids rounded up so I can get them out of the building. And it seemed like I wasn't able to get free, and it's just like, well, Jared, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Somebody else wants to talk to you for a minute, which is always okay. I am not complaining about that. If you got something you want to talk about, let me know. I will carve out time. We'll find a way to talk. Um, so absolutely, that is totally fine. Hunter Gordon, whom I love so much. 
um, he came up to me as I was just about to get my kids out the door. And he says, hey, Caleb wants to talk to you real quick. And I said, I got to go. And he's like, yeah, okay, it'll only take a minute, I think. And I'm like, okay, whatever, okay, fine. Um, and I was kind of grumpy at that point anyway, so... Not that that ever happens. So I snuck over. I knew where Caleb had been. I go to the kitchen, and uh, he wasn't there. So I'm like, where is, where is he? So I turn around, and I see him on the other side of the room. And I walk up to Caleb, and this happens. Uh-huh. An hour past my kid's bedtime, and he wants to use my time to throw a pie in my face. Uh-huh. But I'll have you know I got even. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you got to watch out. The reason I bring that up, though, is because I just said, and you can leave that up there the rest of the sermon if you want. I'm fine with that. Um, just remember what happens when you mess with Jared. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, actually, the reason I want to bring this up is because I sent Caleb, well, uh, I sent him a message, what was that, an hour, hour and a half later, um, and, and said, I'm sorry. Um, I had to send him an apology. Um, because I'll, I'll, I'm going to use this as a time of my own confession. I'm so glad he's still up there. That makes me so happy. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> this is my own confession time, so y'all are just going to have to bear with me for a minute. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Whenever I first got hit in the face with that pie, I was mad. I'm not kidding. Like, I, I actually was. My first instinct was, like, my first reaction was, like, I'm angry. Um, which is why, <laughs> don't put that one back up. <laughs> I love you, man. Uh, so much love in the room. Oh, goodness. Um, which is why I retaliated. Our first instinct isn't to forgive. Our first instinct is, uh, I'm going to pay back. And my flesh welled up in that moment, and I grabbed the pie out of his hand, and I smacked him back in the face with it. So, yeah, my first instinct. So I sent him this message and said, I'm, I'm sorry for, I think it was repying you in the face or something like that. Uh, I'm sorry for that. And I said, how cool would it have been had I had, I had the wherewithal in that moment? to turn the other cheek and say, I forgive you. Um, now, this is a small thing, okay? It's a pie in the face. And just a few seconds later, we were laughing about it. And I, I think we're okay, right? Yeah. We still good? All right, good. Um, I think we're all good. Um, so it wasn't long and we were okay. But still, there was that instant, that, that moment where that thing, that ugly thing reared its head in me. And I felt it. I felt it. So you know what I need to do? I need to go back and listen to Jesus' words that he says. Um, turn the other cheek. Take the insult and love the person in return. Forgive and move forward. Um, I think that speaks far more to what Christ has done in us than getting even. So thank you for the good sermon illustration. Um, and by the way, I'm not going to let her off the hook. Apparently it was Courtney's idea to throw it in Jared's face. I don't know how that happened. Um, I, I don't know. Whatever. I'll be honest with you. By the time I got home, I was honored that they chose me. Um, <laughs> But I thought about that with the Sermon on the Mount. But see, as, as I was thinking about today's text, um, Matthew 7, um, I started, there's this a phrase that all of you know. Y'all ever heard the saying, third time's the charm? Of course you have. Okay. I think there's truth to that. I think there is a lot of truth to that. The third time is a charm, not because there's something mystical or magical about the third time, but because we're kind of cottonheads who are, uh, I like to use that phrase, um, we're kind of cottonheads who tend to overreact, um, which is why I haven't tied my tie yet. So every Sunday morning, as I'm getting ready for church, uh, almost every Sunday, because I'm here and I don't have a tie on yet, but almost every Sunday morning, as I'm getting ready for church, um, can, how many of you can tie a tie? Oh, good. So that's about half. That's, that's good. That's good. Okay. 
And some of you are like, kids, pay attention. You need to learn to tie a tie. Um, okay. Every Sunday morning as I'm getting ready, I go and stand in front of the, uh, the tall mirror my wife and I have in our house, and I stand there, and I tie my tie. It's, it's nothing magnificent, um, but I stand there in front of the mirror, and I tie my tie so I can see the length. Now, see, I'm going to do it right now, and I'm hitting my microphone, and I told James I was going to do it, and you're just going to have to deal with it. So, um, anyway, I stand there, and I tie my tie, and almost every time, the first time, it's too short. Almost every time. Every time, my tie is too short. So what do I do? I undo my tie. If I can pull it the right direction. I'm backwards here. Let's try this the right way. There is a right and wrong way. Um, so what I'll do is I'll pull a little more out. I'll try to tie it the right length, right? Or I'll do it the other way. Because I've, I read somewhere once upon a time that the way to tie a tie, it should hit you right in the middle of your belt. Do you all know that? That's what I've been told. Your tie should hit you right in the middle of your belt. And some of you are learning all kinds of things about dressing properly um, that you really don't care about. And I probably just tied it too short again because I'm trying not. Oh, look at that. Look at that, right in the middle of my belt. So look at that. Second time was the charm that time. But typically what happens is first time I'll tie it wrong. You don't have to clap. That's okay. Um, so no, 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 I'm kidding. Hunter was trying to do it. No, it's okay. Um, so usually what happens is that straight, even close. I don't have a mirror. So, okay, good. I don't care. Y'all are family. So, um, if it's crooked, deal with it. Um, so, y'all are just dealing with a lot of stuff today. It's a lot. Y'all need to talk. Um, man, I'm way off track. So, the reason I bring this up, third time's a charm. Usually what happens is I'll tie it too long or too short, and then I'll have to undo it and redo it. And the next time I have overcorrected, and I've gone too far the other way. So if it was too long, now it's too short. If it was too short, now it's too long, and I have to do it again. Because what we tend to do is we overreact. And after our second reaction, after we come back and we realize, oh, I've screwed up again too far in the other direction, we make small changes and get back to where we're supposed to be. And I believe that that's why the saying third time's the charm is true. Because I've experienced that in my life. I have a tendency when something happens to overcorrect, and then it's the third try that finally it seems to come out right. So I think there's some truth to that. And the reason I bring that up is because we need to bring a lot of things into focus. And if we read today's text, we have a tendency to overreact one direction or the other. We have a tendency to overemphasize one side or the other side. And it's not until we realize we need to find what Jesus is actually talking about. We need to bring what he's talking about into focus. We don't want to be too, too zoomed in. We don't want to be too far zoomed out. We want to bring it into focus. And it's not until we do that that we can actually live the countercultural life Jesus calls us to. So, I would like to read God's word. Would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word today? Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or, how can you say to your brother... Let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and, the one who, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So what I want us to see today from this text, I want us to have a clear view of what our attitude should look like. See, the truth is, as Christians, we're going to interact with others. And if you don't, well, then you're missing the whole point. If you think you can just become a Christian, then I'm going to become a recluse and go sit in my house and never talk to anybody. And some of you are like, man, how can I get that job? Um, The truth is, we're going to interact with others. Some people that we're brothers and sisters with, like I'm talking like Christian family with, some people who are not a part of the family, we're going to interact with others. And we have to have the right attitudes if we're going to behave the way that Jesus tells us to behave. If we're going to live the way that Jesus calls us to live. So we're going to look at these attitudes that we need as we interact with others. Okay, First, we must be charitable towards our brothers and sisters. We must be charitable towards our brothers and sisters. There's a word that keeps on coming up as I was reading this week, and it was a word that I had to look up, and I'll get to the point in just a minute. Um, But this word was censoriousness. Censoriousness. That's a fun word, right? Yeah. Yeah, Judah. That's right. I love that boy. Man, he's always on it. Censoriousness. Um, And we're going to talk about what that means here in just a moment. Um, But we all know the saying, do not judge so that you won't be judged. You all familiar with that? You all ever heard it? Just so you know, it's not just Christians that use that. There's a lot of people outside of the church who like to use that phrase. Um, And it's right here in the Bible. Many of us have probably heard it, judge not lest you be judged. Right? So I'll I'll go back to some some older English here and we'll, we'll do it that way. But see, the idea, we get it. You don't judge others so that you're not judged yourself. That's pretty simple, right? Y'all, y'all tracking with that? Y'all with me today? Awesome. Okay, that's pretty simple. And Jesus gives the explanation, then in verse 2, he says, For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Okay? He's explaining here that the standard that you're going to use in condemning somebody else Whenever you try to sit on the bench, whenever you're trying to act as judge over somebody else, and you condemn them for that, that same standard will be, in turn, applied to you. Right? That's what Jesus says. And there's two important things that are happening here. Two important things here. First thing I want to point out is that we have a tendency to see our flaws in other people. Uh, I mean, you'll be judged to the same standard that you judge others with, right? I'll be honest with you, as a, as a preacher, okay, as someone who preaches on a regular basis, I'm very critical of other preachers. I don't mean to be. I just, it just happens. And what's funny is I've been critical of some things that some other preachers have done in, in their sermon delivery. And I realized, wait a minute, I, I do that. So if you're all being critical of me, guess what? You might do the same thing. No, um, the point is, we have a tendency to pick at other people. If we, if we have a tendency towards self-centeredness, we have a tendency to pick at the self-centeredness of others. Or if we have a, a tendency towards pride, we tend to pick at that in others. Or if we struggle with lust, we tend to be overcritical of other people who struggle with that same sin. We have a tendency to be that way. And the second, things, it, the second thing we need to understand is what it means to judge. I mean, that's kind of important. If we're saying, do not judge so that you won't be judged, I want to know what it means to judge. Because if we miss that, then we're probably in trouble. Now, does, does Jesus saying this, does that mean that we have to suspend all moral and critical judgments of actions? Is that what Jesus is saying here? 
I see some people shaking heads, and of course that's not what he's saying here. Of course that's not what he's saying here. However, that's what the culture around us believes Jesus is saying. Judge not so that you're not going to be judged. If you're critical of somebody else or of somebody else's actions, that means that you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to judge, right? That's, I don't know if you've ever heard that. I sure have, though. So we hear, well, judge not so that you won't be judged, right? You're going to be judged now because you're judging me because you said my actions were wrong. No, of course we're not, supposed, we're not supposed to suspend all moral and critical behavior. The problem is many even in the church have bought into that line of thinking. And it's become a problem. We, we see churches that are so deluded that I have a hard time a lot of times even calling them churches. I sure don't want to get that way. So what does it mean to judge then? If it's not suspending all moral judgments or all critical thinking, like what does it mean to judge? Well, I think that's an important question to ask. Because if we're going to suspend those judgments, not only are we being unwise, we are being unbiblical. I want to roll through a sampling here that just shows that we actually, as Christians, as people in the church, we have a responsibility to, to judge, at least, in the, at least in the sense that we're using it here right now. Okay, Those critical or moral judgments. All right, We have a responsibility to. First of all, Jesus here in this passage, um, you don't need a slide, he calls people dogs and pigs, doesn't he? Did you all catch that? He says, don't throw your pearls before pigs. Don't throw what's holy to dogs. Is Jesus being critical? I think he is. I think he's using judgment right there. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. How will you know if your brother has sinned against you unless you are critically judging actions? How? I think you have to understand, don't you? I think we have to use some kind of judgment. Luke chapter 17, verse 3, it says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, two things happen there. One, he says, forgive him if he repents. And two, don't we have to use judgment? Some kind of critical reasoning. Of course we do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And we exhort, exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And how do we know how to act towards those people? Well, we have to use critical judgments, don't we? How do we know whether to warn or comfort? How do we know? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Titus chapter 1, verse 13, it says, This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply, so they may be sound in faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and commands of people who reject truth. So, of course, we have to be critical of teachings also. And I've said this before. I expect you all to be critical of my teaching. Now, please be generous also, because I'm going to screw up at some point. I hope that you're generous with me also, and I'll try to be generous with you. Um, but the truth is, I'm going to screw up. I'm prone to make mistakes. I think we had a talk about this at a, at a board meeting here about a month ago. You know, people make mistakes. We do. We're flawed people, right? Everybody makes mistakes. So, no, we don't want to be overly harsh towards people. But further, there are commands to judge in places like John chapter 7, verse 24. We're told to test the accuracy of teachings in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. We're told to watch out for dogs in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. And we're told to test the spirits in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Again and again, we're told that we have to use some kind of critical thinking. Some kind of critical judgment, right? We're told to do that. So what does it mean then here where Jesus says, judge not, or do not judge? What is he getting at? Because our understanding of judgment means, well, we can't be critical. But clearly that's not what Jesus is getting at here because that would contradict the rest of Scripture. So what is he saying here? Well, I think the most important thing to do is to look at the example he uses, right? 
the example he uses in verses 3 and 4. Because that will give us some clarity on what it means to judge. He says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye. Um, I remember listening to a chapel service at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. I remember listening to this, and uh, a preacher was, was talking about this. And I don't have any idea what his point was, don't know what he was getting at, but I remember he kept calling these people plank-eyed spec inspectors. And I thought, boy, that sounds really good. And that stuck with me. We don't want to be plank-eyed spec inspectors. That's, that's not what we want to be. It's not the way we want to be. Okay? But we need to use some kind of critical judgment, don't we? Jesus is getting at this. See, Charles Spurgeon, he says that saints, saints are not judges, but saints are not simpletons either. And I think that's well said. We're not judges, but we're not simpletons either. So what does it mean to judge? I believe Jesus is getting at censoriousness. That's where this word comes from. Okay, That's, that's the idea of this word that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. The definition of censoriousness, um, it means one who is, or it means to be censorious, which I'm like, that doesn't help me at all. That doesn't help you all either. Like, why did I even open a dictionary for that? Um, so, censorious, it means to be severely critical of others. Severely critical of others. That means to judge someone overly harshly, to be overly harsh towards somebody. And also, assuming that their motives were wrong. Assuming that they wanted evil things. Being seriously harsh towards people. And I believe that's what Jesus shows us here. I think about this hilarious picture of this guy with a beam of wood in his mouth. And actually, in his mouth, in his eye. Wow, talking's hard, y'all. Um, so, I, I picture this, this every time I, I read this story. Um, I remember whenever I was a kid, I grew up in the church. And I, I usually sat on the second row about where Alan and Lisa are. Um, but, sorry, I didn't, anyway. Yes, whatever. So, I usually sat there, but... But every once in a while, because we didn't have something like children's church, uh, we didn't have anything like that. So about once a month, the pastor would do like a, a children's sermon, this, this, mini, this mini lesson for our kids. And we would all come up and we'd sit on the front row right here like, like you guys. I, I was way younger than them. Um, but actually, it was like last week, but still. Um, we would come up and we'd sit on the front row and the pastor would do this. And he, he had this passage in mind. And he, he came and he said, I need to volunteer. And of course, the little me, I'm like, yes, I want to do it. So he handed me this little piece of sawdust. And he said, okay, I need you to put that by your eye. Don't put it in your eye. Just put it by your eye, and we'll get the point. So I took this little piece of sawdust. I'm squinting, trying to get it to stay there. And I don't know what's happening. I had no idea where he was going with this because I'm a little guy. I didn't know what was going on. And the door to that front row was maybe from the pulpit to, to right there the front row, okay? So it was about that far away. And we're sitting there. There's about, I don't know, half a dozen of us that are sitting there on that front row. And all of a sudden, the preacher kicks the door open. He's got this landscaping timber that he's carrying in his eye like this, stumbling in. And that's what I picture every time I read this. You see how hilarious this picture is, right? You hear how hypocritical this is. Somebody with his landscaping timber sticking out of their eye coming down like, I'm going to get this for you, Caleb. Don't. Anyway, let me get the pie off your face. Um, all while I'm covered in pie too. So um, we get the picture and we see how ridiculous it is, right? You see how silly that would be. You can't see. You've got something sticking out of your eye. How can you see to take the speck out of your brother's eye, Jesus says. See, in order to deflect from the pain of dealing with our own sin, oftentimes we pick at the sin of others. That's what Jesus talks about here, isn't it? 
Instead of dealing with the log that is sticking out of your eye, it's so much less painful. If I just go over to my brother or sister and say, yeah, but you got this little thing over here that you need to deal with. I'll deal with mine later, right, right, right now. Here's this. It's so much easier to do that. It's so much less painful for us if we do that. But Jesus says, deal with the sin in your life. See, Jesus tells a parable later on. It's actually over in Luke. Um, in Luke chapter 18, he tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Some of you are probably familiar with it, but this Pharisee comes in, and he's standing there praying out loud, saying, Thank you, God, that I'm not like this lowly tax collector over here. I thank you that you didn't make me wicked like him. That guy had a plank in his eye. He had pride in his eye. Wanting everybody to say, look at me, look how holy I am. All the while, the tax collector, you know what he was doing? He was standing over there, had his head down, beating his chest, saying, God, forgive me. He was dealing with his sin. He was asking God to forgive him. See, the Pharisee in that example was a plank-eyed speck inspector. Picking at the sin of somebody else, all while just blatantly ignoring the sin in his own life. See, that's the first issue we have. But I think that there's an, another issue that we need to deal with here is we're being charitable towards our brothers and sisters. Um, and I, I think that's the issue of complacency. Um, I think there is an issue with complacency that Jesus deals with a little bit here. Um, after he calls them hypocrites for inspecting specs, um, he explains a simple two-step process. Now, this is incredibly simple. Incredibly simple. He says, first, in other words, it's that, you remember we talked about this word proton here a couple weeks ago? Um, he says, first, first, before you do anything else, take the beam or the plank or the log, take it out of your own eye. Deal with your sin. Deal with your struggle. Ask God to forgive you of that. He says, remove the thing that is impairing your vision. The thing that's keeping you from seeing clearly. Deal with your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Jesus says, so take it out of your, your eye. The end. That's not the end of the story. Is it? He goes on. He doesn't say deal with your issues and then step back because you've done your part. That's not what he says at all. He says, take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. He says, deal with your sin and then encourage your brothers and sisters. Help your brothers and sisters. Help one another. Encourage one another. Help them see clearly. Take the thing out of their eye also. Now, I think it's significant that Jesus uses the eye here, not only because just, just a chapter ago he was talking about uh, if the eye has light, then the whole body is filled with light. If the eye doesn't have light, then the whole body is filled in darkness. So it's important for that reason. But it's also important because think about your eyes. How many of you could stand it if I touched my eye right now? Some people I know freak out about that. Like, uh, I don't know if any of you are those people. But some people are just like, no, don't go anywhere near the eye. It's creepy and weird. I, I understand. I don't like it either. Um, but the eye is a very delicate organ, isn't it? It's very delicate. It's sensitive. See, if we're going to go to our brothers and sisters, we need to go with gentleness, with extreme caution, extreme care. Because if you go in and you don't use a steady and a gentle hand, you can actually do more damage than good, right? I mean, think about it. You have something in your eye, and I say, hey, let me get that for you. And I just pull out my pocket knife. I'm like, I'm going to dig that out. That's not good. No, y'all are going to run and hide. Of course you don't want that. Instead, what you need is you want, to, you want to go to the eye doctor. I don't know how many, I've never had to do this, but I know a lot of people who have had to go to the eye doctor to have a piece of metal or a piece of wood removed from their eye. 
Like, any of you ever done that? Yeah, okay, so some of you have. Good. I mean, not because not you had to do that. But, but good, you know what I'm talking about. That's what I meant to say. Um, boy, talking, man. Um, the point is, it's a very delicate organ. And if you're not gentle, if you're not careful, you can cause serious and lasting damage. The same is true whenever we go to our brothers and sisters. And we say, hey, listen, there's this thing in your eye. We need to use extreme care. We need to be very gentle. And we need to be loving about the way we do it or else we can cause serious and lasting damage. So we see that not only do we need to be very careful and very introspective as we go to our brothers and sisters, but we also need to make sure we avoid from complacency, avoid complacency saying, well, I can't ever deal with that because I'm always going to have sin in my life. Deal with known sin. And then encourage your brothers and sisters. Encourage them. See, we tend to one extreme or the other, which is why I stood here and tied my tie. We tend to either be the ones like, well, I can't judge so I'm going to be over here and I'm never going to try to help my brothers and sisters because I, I know what's in my own heart and I can't, I can't ever do anything because I, I know I'm a sinner. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, is this side over here where we're always saying, look, you have this in your life. You need to deal with this. And we come in and we're always rough and we just there's no gentleness in us at all. There's these two extremes and really what we need to do is we need to find the right length. We need to tie our ties right. That's the idea. Jesus is getting at here. So let's not do damage um, and we'll talk about how we, how we do this well here in just a moment, how we bring this into focus. But we must love our brothers and sisters by gently and lovingly helping them deal with the problems in their lives also. But first, we need to be introspective and ask God to show us our sin, to reveal our sin and help us deal with it. So we must be charitable toward brothers and sisters. Second, we need to be discerning. We must be discerning towards outsiders. Um, we must be discerning towards outsiders, okay? Verse 6, Jesus says, Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Okay, so in order to understand this passage, we have a couple questions we've got to ask. First of all, what is this thing that is holy? Like, what is holy, he says. Um, don't throw this, what is holy. Don't throw that to the dogs, right? So what is, what is he talking about when he says, don't throw this? <clears throat> there have been all kinds of suggestions throughout church history. Some more prominent than others. Um, I, I'm going to do like I do most weeks, and I'm going to tell you what I think makes the most sense, um, what I think fits the context best. And I think that what is holy throughout the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel of Jesus. I mean, whenever he refers to the holy thing or the holy message or what is holy, he's talking about the Gospel of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Um, D.A. Carson says, well, he says, what is holy in Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. So the aphorism forbids proclaiming the gospel to certain persons designated as dogs and pigs. Now, I want to be careful with this because it sounds like I'm telling you don't share the gospel. And that's not what Matthew says at all. As a matter of fact, you read throughout Matthew, Matthew has a very strong evangelistic emphasis. Matthew goes around telling people, share the good news. Share the hope that you have in you. As a matter of fact, it ends with the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, unto all nations. Make disciples of everyone. Like, Jesus wants you to go. Clearly, he wants you to take the gospel to all nations, including the Gentiles. And, you know, they would have been considered unclean. Some people suggested maybe those are the pigs. I don't think so. And I thank God that I don't believe that's the message, because if so, I'm not of Jewish descent, so I'm, I'm hopeless. I don't believe that's the case. But he says that we need to take the gospel, but we need to also be cautious about where we take the gospel and how we take the gospel. To best understand what Jesus is talking about here, maybe we need to talk about who the dogs and the pigs are. <laughs> Y'all want to be called dogs and pigs? 
Sorry, I just thought that was funny. Like, I'm not going to go around calling you all dogs or pigs. That'd just be like a real slap in the face. And we all know that that ugly thing wells up. So um, who are the dogs and pigs? Uh, John Calvin, he said it well. He said it ought to be understood that dogs and swine are names given to those who by clear evidences have manifested a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable. These people, these dogs and these pigs that Jesus is referring to here, these are those who have repeatedly and hard-heartedly and aggressively rejected the gospel. That's who he's talking about. Um, I will stress, however, that this must, as the church, we must realize that this must be the exception, not the rule. This must be the exception, not the rule. Um, we, we need to take the gospel to people, even if they reject it the first time. Take it again and again and again. But at some point, we have to realize when people, we have to use discernment to understand when someone has become aggressively and vehemently opposed to the gospel. Um, John Stott, in talking about how this needs to be the exception, he says, This teaching of Jesus is for exceptional situations only. Our normal Christian duty is to be patient and persevere with others as God has patiently persevered with us. And I thank God that people persevered with me. Um, I thank God people persevered with me because I certainly didn't respond to the gospel the first time I heard it. Um, so I thank God. But there are other instances where Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet. Wipe the dust off your feet at them. You know what that, you know what that means? That's a sign of condemnation. Saying they're self-condemned. So you move on. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus sends out the 12, and there he says, If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Something similar said in Matthew 15, 14, Acts 13, 51, and Acts 28, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. We're not going to go through all of them and read them because I think you get the point. There are instances where Jesus says, look, they are condemned. They stand condemned. Take the gospel elsewhere. See, the point isn't to reject people. That's not the goal. The point is that these, these dogs or these pigs, they have repeatedly and certainly rejected the gospel. And at some point, what you're doing, you ever heard the expression, beating a dead horse? At some point, you need to take the gospel somewhere else. I, I know that's hard to hear, and I don't even like saying it. Something about that feels off, but that's what God's word says. So, there it is. But again, we need to make sure that this is the exception, not the rule. Y'all tracking with that? We take the gospel, we take the gospel, but at some point we have to say this person has repeatedly and aggressively rejected the gospel. But how will we know? How will we know? When do we keep on beating the horse and when do we move on? How do we know? Well, it's going to require a great deal of discernment since you asked the question, how do we know? Um, even though none of you said anything. Um, how do we do that? Well, that's our third point. We must be submissive toward the Father. We must be submissive toward the Father. Jesus then, and in verse 7, he goes into this, this phrase that we've all heard at some point or another. He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. You all familiar with that one? Um, most of us probably are because it makes us feel good, so I understand. Is this a blank check that Jesus is writing right here? Of course not. Of course not. Do I believe that God answers prayers? Absolutely I do. I've seen God answer prayers. I've experienced it in my own life. Of course I believe God answers prayer. Yes, I do. But this is not God saying you can have anything you want. It's all yours. 
There's a, lot of, there's a lot of preachers who have twisted this to say, you know what, just ask for enough wealth, ask for whatever you want, God's going to give it to you if you ask in enough faith. It's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not the point. Again, do I believe God answers prayers brought in faith? Yes, I do. But I think two things are important here. First is the context. Um, Jesus says this, actually, as he's, as he's stressing um, as he's stressing the importance of using discernment, right? He says this, as he's talking about, like, you're going to have these that you need to take the gospel to and not judge and be open and not censorious with. You're going to have to have those. And then there's also these dogs and these pigs over here. How are you going to know which one's which? It's going to require a great deal of discernment. Where does that discernment come from? It comes from God. Yeah, it comes from him. So we go to him and we ask. We ask him. Second thing I think is important here is whenever we come to Jesus, we must come with the right motives. Uh, that's, that's a biblical requirement. Come with the right motives. Over in James chapter 4, it's verses 2 and 3, he says, You desire and do not have. You murder and can't, covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive. But Jesus just said, ask and it will be given to you, right? But here, James says, you ask and you don't receive. Wait a minute, is there a conflict? No, of course not. It goes on and says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Jesus says your motive matters. James says your motive matters, I guess I should say. And of course, we believe this is inspired by God. So I believe God knows what you need. God knows what you need. And whenever we go and we ask, we must do so with the proper motive. And Jesus uses another illustration to show what he's talking about, right? He uses this picture of the father, of a father. His kid comes to him and says, can I have bread or fish? He wants something good, right? And he says, which father is going to give him a stone if he asks for bread or a snake if he asks for a fish? Like, look, I got one of my kids in the room. If Molly came to me and she says, dad, I'm hungry, I'm going to be like, here, have a snake. Ha, I'll show you. Quit bothering me. No, of course not. Of course I'm not going to do that. I love my daughter. I'm not going to do something like that to her. Might do it to her brothers, but not to her. But we learn that, that's a joke. Please don't call family services or anything. Love your kids. And he goes on and he says, look, God is so much greater than that. Verse 11, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Of course you evil people, I get to call you all evil again. God does it first, though. So you evil people know how to give good things to your kids. God's so much better than you. And if you belong to him, if you're his child, of course he's going to give you good things. I wouldn't intentionally harm my kids, and I know that I'm prone to selfishness. I'm prone to arrogance. I'm prone to anger. I'm prone to greed and a whole host of other vices. And now you all think I'm scum, and that's probably fair. I know that wickedness of my own heart. And I know how to give my kids good things. God doesn't have any of those vices. How much more does he know how to give us good things? Of course he does. God isn't some mean, vindictive father. He's a loving and a caring father. But see, I remember the day that this kind of woke up to me because my dad came and he said, Jared, what we have to realize whenever we pray is that no is an answer. No is an answer. We don't like hearing it. I tell you, my kids sure don't like to hear no. But no is an answer. We have to recognize that our vision is limited. God's is not. Our knowledge is partial. His is infinite. So when we go to the Father, he gives what is best even when we don't see how. Ask? Yeah, you'll receive what you need. You'll receive what is best. 
I absolutely believe that's true. Um, as I was reading John Stott this week, he, he quoted this guy named Alec Moiter, and he, he says it better than I could, so I'm just going to read it. He says, if it were the case that whatever you ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again, because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think, if you consider it, you will agree. Uh, it would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by his prayer promises, God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and in exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear the burden? Y'all, I'm so glad that God doesn't give me whatever I ask for. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, well, I kind of wish I had the new car. No, I'm very grateful that God tells me no, because I know that he knows better than I do. So whenever we go to God, does he give us good things? Yes. Not always riches or fame or even what we ask for, but he always gives us good things. Um, actually, in Luke, he, he clarifies this just a little bit. Over in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, this is a parallel passage to this one. He, he says this. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God's going to give more of himself as we seek him out in prayer, as we seek out his wisdom, his discernment, as we seek him, he gives more of himself. And it's into this context that Jesus speaks the golden rule, right? You all familiar with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done to yourself? You all familiar with that? It's into this context that he says this. The truth is, if we're going to properly relate to God, then we must see that it involves how we relate to others. And that's what he says here. He says, as we treat others as we would have them treat us, we're obeying the law and the prophets. We're doing what the book says. Jesus says that very thing. As he gives the golden rule, we're keeping a summary of the Old Testament by submitting to God's rule and his reign. In other words, we don't treat others well because we hope that we're going to get good things from them. We treat others well because that's what God has commanded us to do. We treat others the way that we would want to be treated, not so that maybe they'll, they'll treat us kind in return, we do it because that's how we obey God. So, we must be charitable toward brothers and sisters. We must be discerning towards outsiders. And we must be submissive toward the Father. So what? <clears throat> I told you we need to bring things into proper focus. Um, not tie our ties too long or too short. Some of you are like, I don't wear a tie, so this is easy. Look, I want to make sure that we bring this into the proper focus. And I know which camp I tend to fall into. Um, I know my own heart. My tendency here is to overcorrect and the side of judgmentalism, of censoriousness. I, I know my own heart. Um, and I'll just, I'll just tell you, that's the side I tend to fall into. Um, I tend to minimize my own sins and maximize, maximize those of others because it's less painful for me. You know, you all ever had that thing that you, you get a splinter. And you don't want to touch it because it hurts to touch it. Ever felt that? And that's kind of the way our own sin is. So we look at other people's sin because it's easier than touching the splinter we've got. Touching our own wound. It's easier to deal with somebody else than it is to touch our own. And we think if we just leave it, we'll be okay. But see, that's not the kind of, that's not the kind of man I want to be. That's not the kind of church I want us to be. Um, I've told people before, I want Christian fellowship to be loving and welcoming. I absolutely want us to be open and tell people you're welcome here. Absolutely. We, we want to love you. We want to welcome you. We want to help you. We want to be here for you. 
That doesn't mean that we overlook the fact that they are sinners in need of God's grace. Of course not. I'd miss the whole point. But we don't come saying, well, because you did this and this and this and this, you are condemned and you are filthy and you need to leave. Of course that's not what we do. That would be spurning God's grace. Instead, we gently and lovingly teach people, helping them to know God and to see what it means to be his disciple. That's what we do. But we also must ensure that we don't fall into the second camp, the one that says, no, you're fine just as you are. You don't have to change a bit. You're perfectly okay. See, because the truth is, as you were, you were not fine. As I was, I was not okay. I would have told people I was, but I know my own story. I know the sin I was in, and you know what that was? That was destined for hell. Like, I know who I was, and I wasn't fine. I was not okay. I may have pretended I was, and I probably would have told people around me that I was. But I know the truth. I know that my sin deserved hell. So I was not fine, and I'm certainly not going to sit by and say, hey, no, you're fine just as you are, living in your sin and your own filth, unrepentant. It's okay. It's fine. No. And I'm thankful that people didn't treat me that way. They didn't talk to me that way. You know, uh, we just listened to Bruce talk about telling, telling our stories. And I know some, some are getting restless, and I'll try to tie this up pretty quick. But I, I, remember, I, I remember the day I, I remember the day that uh, God changed my life. Um, so I'm just going to tell you a quick part of my testimony. This is just a short part. Um, I, I remember when God convicted me of my sin. Um, was there something miraculous about it? I, I, I think so. Because um, I believe I was dead and he made me alive. But the way that happened was through a group of brothers. Um, I went to a Bible study feeling the weight of my own guilt and my own shame. And I went into that group of men and I confessed sin to them that I wouldn't dare tell anybody else. And I just poured it out to them. And I told them that I was ashamed and I was embarrassed and I laid it all out there and I wept with my brothers. Um, because God loved me too much to leave me as I was. He loved me too much to say, you're fine, it's all okay. Instead, he told me the truth. Gently and lovingly, he told me the truth. And I'm, thank- I'm thankful for my brothers that I sat in that room with and I cried with because uh, whenever I, I confessed my sin to them, they didn't say, oh, it's okay, you're fine. That's not what they told me. They did tell me it would be okay, and they told me that they loved me anyway, but they didn't tell me it was okay. Instead, what they did is they said, we want to help you. We want to come alongside you. We want to link arms with you. We want to join you. We want to help you move past your own sinfulness. We want to help you remove the log from your eye. And I don't know if they perceived it as a log or they perceived it as a speck, and I really don't care. I'm just thankful that my brothers were there for me, and they loved me, and they helped me. They didn't tell me I was okay. They didn't tell me it was fine just to go on living in sin. They supported me and helped me move past to what God intended. Does that mean I'm perfect? No, no. If you just watch my life for the next half hour, you'll see I'm going to screw it up again. Somebody laughed. That's not funny. That's true. (laughs) I'd be embarrassed if y'all could see a reel of my life. Because I know how sinful I am. But the good news is I've got brothers and sisters and I've got God's grace. 
And God loves me enough, and my brothers and sisters love me enough to encourage me to get the speck out of my own. I take the log out of my eye. And I want to be there for brothers and sisters to do the same. Absolutely, I do. Because the truth is that God loves us too much to leave us where we are. And to be the church, to submit to the Father, we must relate to others well, because Jesus paid too high a price to leave us where we were. He paid too high a price to say, no, your sin is fine. It cost him everything. Everything. See, the good news is there is hope and there is healing whenever we come to him and we confess our sins because he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what I want to close with today, what I want to encourage you to do is don't think you're fine where you are, but by God's grace and with the help of God in your life, with the encouragement of your brothers and sisters, you can walk in the light. You can have fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for that simple truth um, that John writes in 1 John 1, 9, um, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, Father, that's why I'm here. That's why we're here as a church is because we can know you, not because we're good, not because we're, we're good enough on our own, but because you loved us and you made a way for us. Um, so, Father, for that today, I want to pray. I want to pray just a, a prayer of praise and just say thank you, God. Thank you, God, for who you are and the work that you've done. Um, we certainly don't deserve it, but you are gracious anyway. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you. Father, I pray today that you would give us discernment, uh, that you would help us to know how to take the gospel, how to be faithful to the calling you've placed on our lives. Um, Father, how to... How to encourage one another, how to build one another up without being overly harsh, without being condemning, but instead being gentle and loving. So Father, I pray that you would help us. Father, I pray that you would make this word effective as only you can. And I thank you for the challenge it is in my life. And I pray that we would preach this to ourselves again and again and again. So Father, I help us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.